Last week, for those of you who came on Monday night, um, there was a visit from a young Tibetan Lama um, who spoke, from what I understand, some about Rigpa and emptiness and all kinds of other stuff, which some people came and said they didn't understand so well, but they sure liked him. <laughs> Sokni Rinpoche is a wonderful man. They could feel his presence, and some things under it were clear, and some things it's as if he was struggling to express some very deep truths. Um, and you could feel it, but not exactly understand it. In some cases, maybe some people understood it all, I don't know. Um, I'm very glad that he came, because he is a wonderful teacher. And this evening, and what I'd like to do, and maybe there's a little bit of a way to tie uh, last Monday and this one together, is um, that in the teachings of emptiness, or I prefer perhaps the word openness, um, often they're misunderstood to, in Western language, to have a meaning that nothing um, exists or nothing matters in some fashion. Um, and quite the opposite is true, that when there is a great sense of openness of body, of heart, of mind, and openness of our human experience, um, then what comes naturally with it is joy and ease and connectedness and compassion that are our true nature or our birthright. So for this evening, what I'd like to do is um, go back to a talk that I gave um, more than 20 years ago. I was kind of looking through my notes thinking about tonight. And I said, oh, this would be fun to do again, see how it sounds 20 years later. Um, And it uses the metaphor or the image of the spiritual warrior based in part um, on the language from that time that I found very exciting of Carlos Castaneda. Um, And uh, part of its intention is to give a sense of these natural qualities of being that awaken in us as we become more present, mindful, alive. Part of it gives a sense that spiritual life is not a passive thing. One comes in and sits and meditates, and if you misunderstand, it can seem as if it's uh, passive. Um, But in a certain way, the stillness of the meditation is the preparation for living in a a much more full way. Um, I guess I'll say one other thing. Um, I'd always wanted to meet Carlos Castaneda, and then got a chance to last year. I was invited to this kind of soiree in the city um, for, it was sort of a kind of a wild invitational guest list for the evening. There weren't that many people, but there was Jerry Brown and Ram Dass and Angelus Arian and Fritjof Capra, and all that was missing was Bob Dylan, I think, who made it kind of, you know. And um, so here's Carlos, this kind of diminutive Um, late 60s, immaculately dressed, um, uh, kind of Latino gentleman, former professor, whatever, telling stories. And I, you know, there were a bunch of storytellers in that room with Ramdas and others. (laughs) He was the best. 
Castaneda was, uh, he was the most amazing storyteller. And then he had people could ask him questions, you know, Carlos. And I think Fritjof Kapper raised his hand and he said, what I want to know is, did you really jump off that cliff, you know? And he said, of course I jumped off that cliff. And I found myself back in my bed in Los Angeles. And he told this whole story completely straight-faced and absolutely believable. What I wanted to ask is, um, he's, he's talking about sorcery and magic. I, um, what does a sorcerer do with the $15 million from his book royalties? <laughs> a sorcerer invests it wisely, yes. <laughs> anyway, so here are some of Castaneda's words. He begins, he says, for me the world is incredible because it is stupendous, awesome, mysterious, unfathomable. My interest has been to convince you that you must assume responsibility for being here in this marvelous world, in this marvelous time. I've wanted to convince you that you must learn to make every act count since you are going to be here for only a short while. In fact, too short for witnessing all the marvels of it. So there is somehow in his way as a storyteller, the evocation of it is that there's a magic to life that is here and it is always present for us when we awaken. His language is to speak of a spiritual warrior or a sorcerer. And in a way, it's really the language um, that he chooses to describe the beauty that comes when an individual devotes their life to presence, to awakening, to seeing this life clearly. Now, the qualities that Carlos Castaneda and his teachings of Don Juan speak of are represented in the Buddhist teachings, or one way that they can be represented in the Buddhist teachings, um, through what are called the, the factors or the qualities of the enlightened heart, the seven factors or qualities. Um, and one sees these or discovers these through the process of a deep attention to the core or the essence of our being. The first of these qualities, seven, Um, that illuminate the the heart of a sorcerer or those who live their lives as a spiritual warrior, to use his terms, is a quality, a man man or woman of knowledge is another of his phrases, um, is a quality of impeccability. A man or woman of knowledge lives with impeccability. And this is a quality of dignity or integrity or attention. There are some people who are very careful about the nature of their acts. Their happiness is to act with the full knowledge that they don't have time. Therefore, their acts have a peculiar power. Acts have power, especially when the person acting knows that those acts are their last battle. There's a strange consuming happiness in acting with the full knowledge that whatever one is doing may very well be one's last act on earth. And then he goes on in another phrase, what matters to a spiritual warrior is that they be impeccable, 
what matters to a man or woman of knowledge is arriving at the totality of themselves. So this is the quality of impeccability, and in some way it is a description of mindfulness or the sacred presence of attention that we can learn through meditation, through all kinds of spiritual disciplines, to bring ourselves here and see the world directly as it is. Now the practice of this attention is to breath and body, to the senses and the world around us, to emotions and the realm of feelings, to thoughts and images, all the belief systems and imaginings and thoughts that we have about the world. And this, in some ways, is the central quality for awakening in every tradition. It's the quality of awareness that knows what is so now. Because there is only now. There's now, and now, and now. It's the quality that sees what is so. Now, sometimes it's kind of slow for us. Well, I'm going to be mindful, and I feel about two breaths, and then it's off to reruns of the day at business, you know, or plans for, you know, vacation at Lake Tahoe next week or something. And then you kind of wake up at the end of meditation and say, well, I was going to be present, but, well, maybe next time, better, you know. Um, And it's not to judge that, but spiritual practice in some way looks for those circumstances, sitting together is one of them, that helps spark that inner capacity for presence. Now, in Carlos Castaneda's case, he said, as his early books described, he was kind of a slow learner, spiritually speaking. And so he needed the, you know, the difficult kind of practices just to get there. It's true, Don Juan could have said, why don't you just sit in meditation and be aware of your breath and your body and mind, and you would, you know, then you'll begin to learn something because you pay attention. But in Castaneda's cases, he said he probably would have just fallen asleep. So instead, he took him out to the wildest part of the desert in the mountains. And then he told him, you know, there are allies out in the desert, but they're not all good allies. And they may come, and they may attack you in some form or other, and you don't know what form the ally will come in, whether it will be in an animal form or a spirit form or some other wild form. And I'm just going to leave you here on the hillside because I know I can feel it that perhaps today the ally will be coming. I'll be back and you can let me know what happened. That's kind of the way the stories were set up. So what could he do there? He's sitting, and he had to really pay attention. Basically, he was frightened, or as he said, terrified, you know, to every sound and the movement of the wind, and is that the ally coming? But in some way, in a much simpler and direct way, what we are doing in meditation is like Carlos in the desert, is training this capacity to be open and free in this moment. Sorrow comes, joy comes, plans, expectations, pain and pleasure. It's as if we can bow to each of them and say, yes, this too is so. This is the experience of this life in this moment, yes. And the moment that we can see or meet this experience with impeccability, with presence, there opens a kind of freedom that comes no other way. 
It doesn't come from thinking or planning or imagining or running away or try to fix. It's the freedom that says, yes, this is the way it is. It is the way it is, and I see it for that and accept it. And then we can respond. And with this freedom, this truthfulness and impeccability, there also comes a kind of innate joy, because we are present for life. This is from Marcella Davis. I volunteered to do the kitchen work on a retreat recently. My task was to tear lettuce leaves for salad. I began to take large bunches of leaves and tear them the way I do at home. Then the cook in charge of the kitchen saw me and said quietly, don't do that, it bruises the lettuce. You have to do one leaf at a time, wash it, and then examine each leaf for rust spots. Tear each leaf and put it in this bowl. Already I knew that this was different. It wasn't just about making a salad, getting it done. Two large cartons of lettuce were sitting there waiting to be torn. (laughs) Ordinarily, I would feel rushed seeing the task ahead. But I was instructed to pay attention to this new way of salad preparation. So I did it and I began to feel calm. And after the first morning of this one-hour activity, on subsequent mornings, I also had to examine any leftover leaves I had torn from the previous day and remove any suspect unattractive leaves. This really made me sit up and take notice of every lettuce leaf. And at lunch, on the third day, I went up to the table to serve myself salad. My eyes were glued to the side of the salad and I thought, I know you. I feel like I know you so well. I love every one of you leaves of lettuce. So it's that quality. It's not the quality of struggling with life, but a receptivity that says, yes, this moment and this one and this one, what we would normally pass aside, which is our life itself. So the first natural quality, this key quality of presence. And then out of it, there are three arousing qualities and three stabilizing qualities that grow from this sacred presence or this uh, impeccability. Of the arousing qualities, the next one is energy. Men and women of knowledge or spiritual warriors are energetic in this cosmology. That is, there's a natural life energy within us. And it's spoken of often in most every spiritual tradition. Um, One of my teachers said, all that's required of you is your earnestness, your willingness to, to be present, to see. So what does it mean to make a wise effort, to have this energetic quality in life? It is simply the energy to pay attention. It's the energy or the effort to see things as they are, to be aware of things as they are. The smallest things, the lettuce leaf, the, the mood of the people that we're working with, the sense of the traffic and the road, to find that quality of attention that says, yes, let me enter into this moment of life fully and wisely. It's not to control things, Because as we find very quickly, with a little attention, it's not possible. Try to control your mind. Okay, I'm going to sit and not think and just be quiet. Does it work? 
Or I try and control someone around you. See if that's any better. Right? So you know the old poster I talk about, of the Swami on the waves. It says, you can't stop the surf. Um, you can't um, stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. The quality of this uh, wise effort or wakefulness is to be present with things as they change and not to live as much on automatic pilot, but to know that we can be awake. There's a story of Mullah Nasruddin, the old Sufi wise man and holy fool and so forth. Anyway, one day he was out sprinkling breadcrumbs in his garden. And a person came up and they said, Nasruddin, why are you putting breadcrumbs on your garden? He said, oh, I do it to keep the tigers away. <laughs> keep the tigers away, said his neighbor, but there aren't any tigers within thousands of miles of here. <laughs> and Nasruddin kept sprinkling the breadcrumbs and said, effective, isn't it? <laughs> now there's a way in spiritual practice where it can become kind of rote like that, all right, I'm sitting and doing my meditation or feeling my breath or feeling my body and it becomes just like one more thing that we do and like brushing your teeth or something but it becomes an automatic thing. I've done it like sprinkling the breadcrumbs and that's not the point of it. It's not how long you sit or how many breaths you feel or you know what experiences happen um, in a way over and over again but rather the quality of presence for this moment which is new, and this one, which is new, and this one. It's beginner's mind. It's seeing that this day is unlike any other that's come before. If one is to succeed in anything, um, says Don Juan de Castaneda, the success must come gently, with a great deal of effort, but with no stress or obsession. So it's not pushing or controlling, it's rather the effort to open, to be present, to know what is so. Now it's also important to realize that from the point of view of a spiritual warrior, um, energy is endless or boundless. We tend to fear that things will run out. So that one Zen master put it this way, he said, if you want to do spiritual practice, cut all your bargaining. Just do it. Don't think, well, I might, or I should, or I should do this much or that much. Just go straight ahead. Um, there's a story of, uh, in Burma of a man who had this um, stall that sold religious articles at the foot of the Shwedagon Pagoda, which is this huge pagoda in the center of Rangoon, almost as tall as the Eiffel Tower, and covered in gold and jewels at the top. Quite amazing. Pagoda, 300 and I don't know, 40 feet high or something. And all these little shops and temples all around it. And this was a sort of pseudo-pious man who would do his things. And at the end of every day, he would do a little Buddhist prayer and said, and by the virtue of my prayers and my work, may I soon attain nirvana. And the guy who had the stall next to him didn't uh, buy this for a moment. You know, this is, okay, this is done for public consumption out loud, and this guy wants nirvana about as much as I want, whatever it is. Anyway, so one day in the rainy season when the sky was fairly dark and the man was closing his stall to go home in the afternoon, the neighbor got this great dragon costume from one of the festivals. 
and as it was getting darker, he came around the corner of the stall of his pious, so-called pious friend, and he said, and waited just until he said, and by the benefit and merit of all that I have done today, may I speedily enter nirvana. And he said, oh, stall holder, I am here to take you to nirvana. And dragons, of course, are kind of a symbol of magical transformation. And the stallholder almost fainted and kind of said, Oh, I want to go to Nirvana, please, but not quite yet. You know? First I have to go home, spend some time with my family, I have things to do here. Could you come back again some other year, please? It's like St. Augustine saying, Praying, dear Lord, please give me chastity and continence, but not yet. You know? So there's somehow a fear that if we live fully, if we give ourselves to this relationship or this artistic task or this work or this moment of being, then we'll run out of this energy and we won't have it for something else. But what one can discover instead is that to give ourselves fully opens the channel of our being. It's like love. Well, if I love this person, then I'll run out and I won't have enough for this person. It doesn't work that way. As the channel for love opens, then not only opens for this person, but that one and that one and that one. And as we learn to give ourselves, um, there's an opening of our true being, of our energy body, that allows this presence to grow. So there's impeccability and energy, effort. The next of the arousing qualities of the warrior, spiritual warrior, is that of courage. And courage isn't so much the courage to go out and fight battles against things. It's really the courage to face what is true, to see the world with interest and investigation and an openness and to say, let me look, I'm willing to face whatever it is that's so and see it. This is the way that it is. And of course, there's the great sorrows of... uh, warfare and hunger and injustice that we see around us in the world that needs our attention if it is to change. It doesn't get changed by denying it or reacting to it. It needs to be listened to and seen for the truth that it is. And similarly, there are those same uh, struggles in ourself, within our own hearts, aggression and boredom and restlessness and fear and judgment. And um, How many of you have noticed the judging mind or the angry mind, you know. And it takes courage just to see what is so and to bow to it. Say, yes, I'm willing to see this. And it can't be done by imitation. Okay, I saw this Tibetan Lama, I'm going to be just like him. You know, he was beautiful, but that's him. It's not an imitation. It's not an ideal. It's the willingness to see what is so in your life bow to it and say, yes, this is so, and this is what I have to work with. There's a secret that's required for this kind of courage, and that is to realize that there's no way to make life pleasant and avoid pain. It's just not possible. It is both pleasant and painful. There's light and dark, and there's birth and death, and there's joy and sorrow. Anybody not have that? So all these ways, well, if I could only do it right, then nothing would be uncomfortable. 
you know, then I could get it all together and my whole day would just be one pleasant thing after another. No loss, no disappointment, no things growing old. But you know what happens, you buy a new car and it's so shiny and it really, you know, it smells nice and the seats are everything so clean and then what happens? It's not a new car for that long. And then it's sort of a middle-aged car or whatever and then, and it's true for everything. It's just how it happens. So there's, um, it's really a work of the heart, this kind of courage. It's really the courage of the heart or the heart of greatness that can see what's so and say, yes, I can taste this, I can open to this, I can hold all of this in this heart. Um, there was an old Huichol shaman named Don Jose Rios that I studied with for a bit when he came up from uh, Huichol Sierras in central Mexico to California, and he ran a series of peyote ceremonies in the, in the 70s. And at that time, when he came up, he was 101 years old. And then he grew old. I think he died at 108 or 109. I saw him over a series of years. He was um, incredibly vibrant and vital for a 100-year-old man. And he says, um, for 80 years I've gone to the mountains. Um, yes, I've learned to endure. I've suffered much in my life. Yet to do this, to learn these spiritual truths, you too must face the sufferings. You must go to the mountains or be alone, for it is not I who can teach you the ways of the gods. Such things are learned only by yourself and only in solitude. So there's a certain way in which we are asked with our hearts to face our life with its measure of joys and sorrows and say, yes, this is this life I've been given. And that is what brings a freedom. Um, the Sufis put it this way, overcome any bitterness that may have come because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each one of us is part of her heart, and therefore each is endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the totality of that pain and called upon to meet it in joy instead of self-pity. So it's the courage of heart is the second of these qualities presence or energy to be alive that we awaken, we discover, the courage to see what's true. And then the next, which is a balance for that, is what Castaneda called controlled folly, lightness, a certain sense of joy or rapture that doesn't take things quite so seriously. A man or woman of knowledge chooses a path with heart and follows it. They look and they know and see that their life will be over altogether too soon. They know that they, as well as everybody else, are not going anywhere. They, see because, they know because they see that in the end, nothing is more important than anything else. In other words, a man or woman of knowledge has no honor, no dignity, no family, no name, no country, but only life to be lived. And under these circumstances, their only tie to their fellows is their controlled folly. 
And thus a man or woman of knowledge endeavors and sweats and puffs, and if one looks at them, they look like any ordinary person, except that the folly of their life is under control. That's the teachings. And really it asks this question, where are we going? Where, where are you going to end up? Whoops. <laughs> Same place everybody else is going to end up, right? And so when it's seen not as something that's terrible or bad or difficult, but rather it's simply the reality that we are here for a dance for a certain time, and let's make it a beautiful dance. There comes a lightness and a joy and an ease. Knowing, um, as one uh, teacher said, God made everything out of nothing, but the nothingness shows through. That it's here, but in this form only for a moment, or a year, or a generation. But generations come and go like that. They do. I mean, think back. Remember the 80s? Or the 70s? You know, or the 60s, or whenever you can remember back then. And it's just, it's gone. This day was here, and it's gone. Fantastic. It appears out of nothing. It does an incredible dance. You get to dance with it, and then, end of show. New show, tomorrow morning. (laughs) Controlled folly. Thus shall we think of this fleeting world, says the Diamond Sutra. A star at dawn, the morning star that's vanishing. A flash of lightning in a summer cloud. An echo, a phantom, a rainbow, and a dream. A bubble in a stream flash of lightning in a summer cloud. It's here, it dances and it passes. I remember talking with uh, Joshu Sasaki Roshi, who's now a 90-year-old Rinzai Zen master in the Los Angeles area. And, um, you know, talking about teaching and the role of teaching and so forth. Somebody asked him, do you go to the movies? He said, oh, I don't bother with the movies. I have meditation interviews. He said, they're much better. I get to see all of you and hear about your life. It's much more interesting than the movies. Um, well, well, what do you do in Roshi? Why do you, you know, what brought you to America to teach? There was this kind of dialogue with him. And he says, oh, I don't, didn't come to America to teach. I let other people do the teaching. I came to America to have a good time. <laughs> said, I want Americans to learn how to really laugh. That was, his, that was his teaching. I want Americans to learn how to really laugh. And there's something that's in us that knows this truth, that it's a game. And it needs to be respected. I don't mean that we don't care for our children and work for justice and feed the hungry. It's essential to do that. But there's another part of us that knows that it's here in this form for a moment. And this is that controlled folly. And it brings lightness to the heart and ease and lack of attachment and lack of all that fear. It allows us to dance. Now these qualities of courage of heart and controlled folly and energy or aliveness are balanced with three stabilizing qualities that are also part of the nature of the mind or the heart when it's awakened or opened. The first of these is a kind of steadiness or strength. And you feel it in beings who are living from a place of wisdom. There's a kind of steadiness or or collectedness. You know what it's like in yourself. Um, 
And it's terribly helpful to have that because when our energy is scattered, we don't see clearly and the whole world seems very real to us. We're kind of reacting. One moment of a reaction, another, grasping, resisting, frightened, scheming, and so forth. When our bodies and hearts and minds are collected together in a steady way, then we can cut through a lot of that confusion and illusion and see things more deeply as they are. See if I can find this quote from Castaneda. Well, in, in part, let's see. No. Tell a story instead. When Don Juan speaks of this steadiness, <clears throat> and when Castaneda talked about it, he talked about personal power. And personal power doesn't mean power over something else. That's a kind of limited power. It's, it's significant in ways, and we see it operating in the world. But more fundamentally, personal power means that centeredness of being that's unaffected or unmoved by the changes of things in the world around us, that steadiness of being. Um, and from that place, then we are able to see things in a new way. Chogyam Trumpa, in the introduction to this book, Living Dharma, that he wrote many years ago, talked about meditation in this way. He said, the practice of meditation presents itself as an especially powerful discipline for the shrinking world of the 20th century. The age of technology would like also to produce a spiritual gadgetry, new improved spirituality guaranteed to bring quick results, drive-through meditation. <laughs> Charlatans manufacture th such versions of the Dharma advertising miraculous easy ways rather than the steady and demanding personal journey which has always been essential to genuine spiritual practice. Only through such things as meditative practice is the student of Dharma enabled to slow down the speed of neurotic mind and begin to see the world with clarity, precision, and compassion. So it's this kind of steadiness that all of a sudden can see things in a new way. And it's what we train. There's a kind of value to it. Um, what matters only as a warrior, a man or woman of knowledge, can one withstand the path of knowledge. A warrior cannot complain or regret anything. Their life is an endless challenge, and challenges cannot possibly be good or bad. Challenges are simply challenges. The basic difference between an ordinary person and a man or woman of knowledge is that a man or woman of knowledge takes everything as a challenge while an ordinary person takes everything either as a blessing or a curse. So it's this steadiness to say this and this and this. There's a story I like to tell of seeing through things that's related to this. I was about to start to tell a little bit ago that um, happened actually at Oxford um, some hundreds of years ago during the examination time, and there was an examination room, and the 
in the Great Hall in Oxford. And the particular question for this essay exam for the students um, was to write a thoughtful essay on the miracle, on the biblical miracle of Christ's turning um, water into wine. And so all these people were sitting and writing their ecclesiastical essays or whatever they had to for their degree at Oxford, except for one student who just sat there silently, quietly through the whole time. And finally, toward the end, the proctor came up and said, you have not written anything, sir, this young man. Um, Time is almost up. Are you not going to write for this examination? And Lord Byron, who it was, picked up the pen and wrote one line, which got him an A, said, the water met its master and blushed. (laughs) That was his essay. And the quality that this speaks of, of this steadiness, is the ability to be present and to see deeply into this moment to really look deeply into the eyes of another being, into the situation of the moment. It's there within us when we take the time. So steadiness. Then two more qualities. Along with this steadiness is a quality of tranquility or peacefulness. The man or woman of knowledge has a peacefulness about them. A famous pianist put it this way, He said, the notes I handle no better than many pianists, but the pauses between the notes, ah, there is where the whole art resides. It's not the doing, but the space within which the doing of our life is held. And you know what that's like in a morning or a day or a moment where, ah, that space opens and you're doing it but the doing does itself, and there's an ease and a joy and a or respect. And even in some great difficulty, there's an ability to be with it because there's an inherent spaciousness or peacefulness about it. And you know what that space mostly comes from? It mostly comes from the way we hold it in our minds. If we hold it with stories and worries and plans and fears, everything gets filled up. And our body contracts with it. Whenever the dialogue stops, says Castaneda, the world collapses and extraordinary facets of ourselves surface as though they had been kept heavily guarded by our words. You are like you are because you continue to tell yourself that you are that way. So one of the qualities that's there in us to discover in meditation and spiritual life, is this receptivity, this openness, this inherent stillness of being. Kabir, the Indian mystic, writes in a poem, he says, the caller chants in a loud voice um, at dusk from the minaret of the mosque. Does he think that God is deaf? (laughs) Don't you know that God hears the ringing of the anklets on the feet of an insect as it walks? So one part of it is finding that stillness in ourselves, reawakening to that stillness. And another aspect of this stillness is the stillness of not being so tossed by desires. 
by what we want and how it should be. Because as long as we're sitting or walking or acting or speaking and we're in how we should be and what we're going to do and what we're going to get, we're not very still. It's always, am I getting it? Am I closer? Am I not getting it? And all of those things. And of course, in America, fulfilling desires is kind of equivalent to freedom, right? Our notion of freedom is that you can buy whatever kind of beer you want. And, you know, in, in an unfree society, they only have state beer. But here there's microbrews, you know, and there's pale ales, and you, can, and you can buy whatever kind of car you want, and you can tune into any kind of TV channel, and that's freedom. Nonsense. I mean, that's a pretty paltry kind of freedom. I don't mean we should have state beer, necessarily. <laughs> but in the, in the most part, those, those kind of choices are connected with bondage. You know, what kind of habit is stronger? You know, what kind of conditioning are we more caught in to buy this or that kind of thing? Um, and so by following our habits and desires, rather than being free, we're simply caught up in a round of one thing after another. Part of what makes peacefulness is that inner stillness that lets go of where we think we're going and says, here we are. We're already here. This moment, we're alive. What is this? Not so much caught in getting, but feeling our wholeness. We are what we seek. It is who we are. Remember this poem from Pablo Neruda. I haven't read it in years, but I love it. Called Keeping Still. Now we will count to twelve, and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, Let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would look at his hurt hands. And those who prepare green wars of gas and fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers and sisters in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, Perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth will teach us, as when everything seems dead in winter and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to twelve, and you keep quiet, and I'll go. Perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves or threatening ourselves with death. So it's really the peacefulness of the heart to come to that place that can listen with tenderness and forgiveness and connectedness and appreciation. Not for what we can get, but for what is here in front of us. Think about it in your life. 
that quality of attention and what it would be at home and relationship and work as you move about. And the last of these qualities, the spiritual warrior, man or woman of knowledge, is balance. Sometimes it's called equanimity, shamanic equilibrium. I remember in the peyote ceremonies with Don Jose Rios, and we'd take the peyote, and I would get generally wretchedly sick doing it, you know. But all these visions would come, and we'd sit around the fire all night long with these rattles doing this chant and rattling. And I'd be rattling, and then the fire would turn into this whole great vision, and I'd see things, and the fire would leap out of me, and it would disappear, and I'd see other things. And, um, you know, and his instruction was just keep rattling and stay where you are and let yourself see whatever needs to be shown to you. Let that in, but don't move from your seat. Just keep rattling and kind of rattle. It's like following your breath in some other way and stay with the chant. Um, the equilibrium of the shaman. Um, and people sometimes mistake this and feel like this balance means a withdrawal from life. But it's quite the opposite. It's not a withdrawal, but rather a willingness to open to life and find our seat or our place in the midst of whatever is happening. And it's quite possible to do it. You've done it. You already know this in certain moments. So it's really awakening this capacity. And don't think that it's passive. I mean, when you speak to somebody who's really centered, they don't have to say much. But the power of that centeredness is enormous. It's the kind of power that Gandhi had, you know, where they sent 60,000 troops to what is now um, Pakistan, West Pakistan, and to East Pakistan in the, the separation time of India just 50 years ago this week you know, millions of people in rioting and so forth. Instead of 60,000 troops, they sent Gandhi. And Gandhi was more effective than those 60,000 troops. Um, Because the presence and the steadiness of his heart and the love that he had for beings was so strong. Um, And people felt it and they knew it. There was this power that came from his integrity and his steadiness. Now, there's a kind of ironic thing about this, um, because this, uh, this divine balance or divine equilibrium comes in part from a steadiness in ourself, but it also comes from a quality of selflessness. That is, of not being in the small sense of self, the little stories that we have. I remember going to see this old wise teacher in Sri Lanka, he was one of the two heads of Sri Lankan Buddhism, named Hinatyana Dhammaloka. He was in his late 80s, and the people that brought me to him said, Oh, we have been his disciples now for many years, for 15 years. And we have never seen him except that he was smiling and laughing. So that I, I thought, well, this is a teacher I'd like to meet. So I went to see him, I bowed and paid my respects, and then they introduced me. And they said, this young man is a Buddhist teacher in North America. This was quite a long time ago. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble, right? He said, oh, you are a Buddhist teacher. Fine, I would like to learn from you. (laughs) (laughs) 
tell me, what do you think is the most important of the Buddhist teachings? And then he looked at me and laughed, being on the spot. And I said, well, I could talk about boundless compassion for all beings. I could talk about wakefulness. But underneath all of that is the truth of selflessness, that this sense that we have of being separate from the world is an illusion. And when we understand that and can let go of that, to see that we are nothing and everything, that we are, we are literally all connected, then there is freedom. And he looked at me and he laughed for the longest time. He said, yes, you have it. I said, I, said, I do? He said, yes, it is so simple. No self, no problem. <laughs> no self, no problem. Self? Problem. <laughs> oh. But it's possible to misuse that, which is why I said that there's something, there's some irony or whatever you will. Um, because in a certain way, when we let go of self-concern in that small sense of fear and desire and how we're caught up with things that often we can't control, when we let go, then instead there comes spontaneous and naturally a well-being, a wholeness, a sense of what we've spoken of, of impeccability and strength and peacefulness and controlled folly or joy of presentness and a natural love that is the true nature of this heart and mind. And so I guess to end speaking of these qualities, I speak of them primarily as a reminder to you. Sokni Rinpoche was here last week and talking about emptiness and Rigpa and the natural state. And this is another language for describing that, your own true nature, your Buddha nature. Um, not so much to develop it, but to remember it, to reawaken it, to find it, to bring it alive in the circumstances that life brings to you. And no matter what path one takes, it is coming to this wellness, this well-being, this wholeness, this ease, um, this being here in the moment fully um, that it leads to. And then um, the manifestation of it will all be different. I uh, remember speaking to Zen Master Sansanin, who's an old Korean Roshi and a teacher and friend. And when he had his 50th birthday in America, I think it was his 50th birthday, it's a long time ago, um, he threw a party in Los Angeles for other Zen masters. And some came from Korea and some came from Japan where he had temples. Some came from around the, the country. Men and women, I think Kanet Roshi, who's a, a um, American woman living up in Shasta who has a big Zen Abbey, um, came and uh, Sasaki Roshi and um, Edo Roshi and all these different. And I said, well, what was the party like? How did the Zen masters party, you know? <laughs> and um, he laughed. He said, it was wonderful to see. He said, because some were sitting very, very quietly, kind of like a formal Zen meal, just eating one bite at a time very slowly, you know, very silent. 
he said some were more casual and relaxed. They were kind of leaning back and eating and conversing and talking. He said, and then some were up dancing around like madmen. He said, and then he looked at me and he said, which were the real Zen masters? You tell me. He liked to ask those kind of questions. So it's not by imitation. You can't do it by imitating someone outside. It's finding that which is present and free within your own being and then allowing that freedom to come through your voice, your heart, your body and mind. I end with this quote, last one from Don Juan, speaking about his his fellow uh, sorcerer and shaman Don uh, Don Gennaro. And um, he speaks about Don Gennaro in the world in this way. Um, We're talking about where we're going in the end with this. He says, Gennaro's love is the world. He was just now embracing this enormous earth, but since he's so little, all he can do is swim on it. But the earth knows that Gennaro loves it, and it bestows on him its care. And that's why Don Gennaro's life is filled to the brim, and his state, wherever he'll be, will be plentiful. Only if one loves this earth, loves this life, with unbending passion, can one release one's sadness. And a warrior spirit is always joyful because their love is unalterable, and their beloved, this earth, embraces them and bestows upon them inconceivable gifts. So in some way, the culmination of this in this language is that ability to be present and give our love, our compassion, to that which is so in this world. So where else can we give it? And that's what what awakens us. So let yourself sit up for a moment, if you would. Again, let the heart be soft and the mind spacious and easy. Sounds arise and pass like waves of the ocean. Feelings and thoughts arise and fall. Rest with what is true. Joys and sorrows. Thoughts and feelings. Let there be a tenderness and presence, an ease or balance that is the awareness that is always there in your heart. Rest in that, know that capacity.
It is but a moment away. So during this week ahead, to the extent that you can and wish to, work with the meditation of just finding that stillness or presence or awareness that can bow to what is so in the midst of it all. Take walks by the ocean or walks in the mountains. And remember this possibility. One more little story and then a quick announcement and we'll go. I was on this last trip or as a way I was leading a retreat in New England. Um, and then I went up to visit my twin brother in Maine. He's a professor at the University of Maine of marine biology and genetics. And I um, was there with my twin brother. He had a wonderful visit. And, uh, and his wife, Tori. And Tori was reminding me, she said, do you remember um, when you came back in robes as a monk, you came to stay with us for a while. This was in 1972. I said, yeah. She said, and um, I asked you to come and teach in my junior high school class. Uh, she was working in the inner city um, and she was working in a middle school that was primarily black and um, Puerto Rican. And uh, she asked me if I'd come in and I said, sure. She said, so we decided, I told the people in my class that this, my brother-in-law who was a monk was coming. Mm-hmm. And the other teachers heard and they said, oh, we'll bring our classes too. So we got, we had the art room or whatever, and we crowded 150 kids in there, you know, and these were the troublemakers and they're all doing things and, you know, and we can tell it's going to fall apart in any moment, you know. And I thought, oh God, what's going to happen? And here my brother-in-law is going to come in and, you know, I guess, I don't know how old I was at that time. I was 26 or something like that, this monk. She said, and I don't know how this, whether this is going to fit together. And I, she said, and then you walked in, she said, and you were so still, because I'd been on retreat for some years. I'd done a, ret- a one-year retreat in this room, not speaking to anyone for a year except my teacher and little dialogues. Then I'd been in the forest for a long time. She said, you walked in, and the entire room changed. And I watched these kids in their sneakers and jiving in the back, and they all looked at you, and their jaws dropped open like they had never seen anything quite like this. <laughs> Here was this funny, skinny, bald guy who flowed it in, right? <laughs> and I said, well, how did I do? I didn't remember any of this at all. She said, you sat down and you started to speak and you were so still and so peaceful. And she said, and they just hung on every word. I couldn't, and the teachers were in the back looking at each other saying, what's going on? I mean, the worst troublemakers are all going, what's that, you know? And I said, well, what happened? She said, you stayed and you talked for an hour and they sat absolutely still. And then a couple raised their hand and said, could we be monks? And then I said, time was over and they didn't want to leave. And I hadn't remembered any of this at all, you know, it's so long ago in the past. But I tell it because it was a pleasure to hear about and kind of be reawakened. And maybe tonight, for you in the talk, um, it's a reawakening or remembering for yourself of those moments where you too were that still or where you too were that present for someone else and you know that it's possible, it's there. So um, the two announcements, one is that there was a black Zafu over here that someone took um, by mistake, probably thinking it was just one of the spirit rock Zafus and the woman 
to whom it belongs would like it back, and she's over here in a blue sweater. The other is someone found a check on a, the floor or a chair here. Um, Charles Wheeler, are you here? I have this check that belongs to you. Are you still here somewhere? We'll come up if you are. Otherwise, I'll keep it, no. <laughs> and then I'd like us to do a chant for just a minute, and we'll go. And the chant is that simple sound, ah, that we work with, which is opening of the body, heart, the spirit, letting go, letting be. to convince you that you must learn to make every act count since you're going to be here for only a short while, in fact too short, for witnessing all the marvels of it. Enjoy the week ahead. Thank you. Next week I'll be on retreat in Mendocino and so it will be James Barris who comes, who's a wonderful teacher. See you the week after that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.